the United States of America were truly indispensable, then every other country in the world is dispensable. And I'm sorry, I, ref- I refuse to accept that. Hello and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick Carver-Fox, joined by my co-host, John Allen Gay. Before we jump into an exciting conversation, I want to mention that applications are open for two of JQAS's incredible fellowships, MPF and SLF. MPF, or the Marcellus Policy Fellowship, is a remote opportunity for students and folks with less than two years of experience working in U.S. foreign policy. Over the course of a semester, hear from experts behind closed doors about the most important strategic priorities of the United States and learn how to write a professional-grade policy analysis. I did MPF. It's a great opportunity. SLF, or the Strategic Leaders Fellowship, is an opportunity for foreign policy professionals with 5 to 15 years of experience to do DC-based monthly programming, engage with experts, and go on an international study tour. Applications for both close in mid-January, so check out our website at jqas.org for more details. Back to the show. Today, we're thrilled to have a conversation with Dr. Christopher Preble. Dr. Preble is the director of the Reimagining Grand Strategy program at the Stimson Center, the co-host of the Net Assessment podcast at War on the Rocks, and he has a new paper coming out on U.S. Grand Strategy that we discussed with him today. He was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy before getting his Ph.D. and working on U.S. foreign policy at the Cato Institute from 2003 to 2020. Dr. Preble is an important voice on U.S. foreign policy, and we are excited to speak with him about it today. But that's enough for me. Let's jump into our conversation with Chris Preble. Chris, welcome to Security Dilemma. And just to lead off, I I really enjoyed this new paper of yours. uh, I'm looking forward to discussing it today. And I kind of want to lead off with what is basically the first half of this paper, which is why can't the United States just keep on pursuing primacy into the heart of the 21st century? Well, thanks, John. Again, it's it's a great, it's such a great pleasure to be on this show. I love this show, and uh, it's it's just an honor to be here. And great to see both of you. Look, I think this this paper starts out with a focus on why primacy is no longer possible, and and it really is, it comes down to two sets of constraints. So the internal constraints are where I spend most of the time, and that means our fiscal situation and public sentiment, which goes together. If if there was evidence that the American people were champing at the bit to restore the primacy that we enjoyed after the collapse of the Soviet Union, if they were, if there was overwhelming evidence that the American people were prepared to spend considerably more than we are spending today on the US military, then I would say um, you know, at least we have the domestic uh, political will to sustain it. That is not the case. Um, we see uh, the, the competition for resources in this country is, is severe and is likely to grow more so over time. And where the military comes out in this competition for resources, I'm, I'm, I am somewhat sorry to say, is on the short end of the stick. There is going to be a lot more attention paid to what we need to do here in the United States domestically. Um, the, the sentiment among many of our fellow Americans that the economy is not working well, and especially that it is not working well for them. This is the part of the story that I am afraid too many in the foreign policy community just skip over. They simply assume that with a concerted, determined marketing campaign, the, the American people could be brought along to want to to actually demand that their taxes be raised and their benefits be cut so that the, the military can be funded at you know the level that some people say is necessary for primacy, which is I've heard some people say as much as five percent of GDP or even more than that, which we're talking about one point five trillion dollars, which in the United States is a lot of money, um, uh, which even in Washington D.C. I should say is a lot of money. So there's the internal constraints, which is a function of the fiscal situation and the domestic political will. That's one reason why primacy is not sustainable. Um, There are also external constraints. When primacy was communicated, mostly among elites, right after the end of of the Cold War, not only was the United States in possession of this enormous military that we used to deter, and if we had to prepare, we were prepared to try to defeat the Soviet Union during the Cold War, this massive military spread all around the world. 
um, we, we encountered very little resistance from other states. Russia was, was a disaster. China was still very poor. There were few other uh, what we now call middle tier powers or middle powers that, that, that seemed to matter very much. And so the presumption was that the United States could simply call the tune and everyone else would dance. Um, that wasn't even true, even in the 1990s. And it is far, far less true today. There is much more resistance, foot dragging, reluctance, and, and again, even sometimes outright defiance of the U.S. demand that other countries uh, follow our uh, instructions, as it were. And, and so, so I, I focus both on internal and external constraints. Candidly, I, I, I tend to think that the internal constraints are even more important than the external constraints. This is why some of my realist friends would sort of take away my realist card, uh, because I actually believe that, that these internal constraints matter. Um, and that's a debate I'm, I'm certainly willing to engage in. But the truth is that both matter, that we, are, we have a different set of expectations. The gap between foreign policy elites and the public that they purport to serve is huge and growing. Um, and the gap between the United States and, and international challengers is narrowing and will narrow further in the future. I'm curious about the premise of what problems you're trying to solve. You're the director of the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program at the Stimson Center. You're reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy for a new era, which uh, you reference uh, 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 as the term that your colleagues Emma Ashford and Evan Cooper coined, unbalanced multipolarity, where uh, uh, other scholars like right. Stephen G. Brooks and William Wolfort coined partial unipolarity. But if none of us are expecting a non-American unipolarity, what do you think America can expect to see? in a new world? What, what, are we, what are we moving towards and what are we preparing for? I think the, the first thing that we have to do as, as a society, as the United States, as U.S. foreign policy experts, is to acknowledge that we are in a different world. And that's what we were talking about earlier about the external constraints in particular. But, but I think that Emma and Evan do a really nice job with their paper in, in pushing back on the argument that multipolarity means you have three or more states of, of relatively equal weight. That is not what we're talking about here. We are, we are clearly talking about two states in the international system, the United States and China, which are clearly the dominant players, but there are a number of other players that are in that, uh, you know, near, near second, in that second tier or, or middle powers that are certainly capable of exerting influence, at least in their region, Many of them are capable of playing a global role. Many of them are playing that global role, not necessarily militarily, not necessarily in terms of their ability to, to wage war or to coerce others by force, but who are playing a role in governance and norm setting and trade and things like that. So I, I do, I really credit Emma and Evan with, with sort of pushing back hard on this notion that we live in a bipolar world or maybe just a unipolar world and just there is no alternative. And equally important, I think they make a very compelling case that this multipolar world or this unbalanced multipolarity where the United States and China are clearly the two leading states, but not the only states that matter, this, this emerging multipolarity is not a disaster for the United States or for the world. It, in fact, there are a number of different scenarios that could play out where you have a, an international system that is much more resilient, that is much more resistant to pressure from either of the two major powers. And that, I think, is, is a hopeful story to tell. Uh, and it's one that I've also written about in the past as well. So I think it is critical in this conversation and, and at the core of, this paper, of my paper is coming to terms with the fact that unipolarity is over and it's not coming back. I think a lot of Americans who've grown up in exclusively a world of unipolarity have some reason to be scared of the idea of foreign powers having serious influence over world events. But in your piece, you also yeah. state that it's a mistake to assume that every actor that does not accept U.S. hegemony is an enemy that should be put in its place. Right. What do relations look like between great powers in this new world? How does the American will and the Chinese will come to some middle ground without being disastrous to American interests or leading to a incredibly destructive conflict. Patrick, I, th I think it starts with a recognition that states have multiple interests, but they have few 
core interests. And that if we can focus on what those core interests are, and we, we sort of, and, and I set them out perhaps even, even a little bit ad nauseum in this paper, it's, it's security, prosperity, and freedom for the American people. That's what I think U.S. foreign policy is about. That's what I think it has been about. And that's what you need to sort of sell to the American people to sustain a foreign policy that has broad public support. Um, but those core interests do not necessarily conflict with China's core interests of also security, prosperity, and something other than freedom, perhaps, or a certain type of freedom. You could say sovereignty, sort of resistance to, to external pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So there are certain core interests of the United States and China in particular, where we can, where we can uh, tease out, not merely that these things are not destined to come into conflict, but where in fact, there are ample grounds for cooperation. But in order to do that, you do need to narrow the, the, the universe of things that you define as a interest or a core interest, et cetera. So, so the key is to set priorities and to narrow that scope. If you do that, then I think you can identify some areas where not only is it in the United States and China's interest to cooperate, it, it is, they are practically compelled to cooperate. There are certain things that are just not going to be solved with each side dividing the world into our friends and their friends. That's just not going to work. Now, granted, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to concede, we are a long ways away from that right now. The mood in this town, and frankly, from what I can tell, I haven't been there, but the mood in China is not very uh, friendly to this suggestion. But I think it does start with recognizing that states do have uh, a certain set of narrow core interests, and those do not necessarily or automatically come into conflict with one another. With the United States, like, could you flesh out maybe a little more, like, for instance, what our security policy should look like if, in terms of those core interests, you know, breaking it down, sure. say, by region or issue? How do we pursue that? Right. My premise is when I write and has been for some time that the United States is an extraordinarily fortunate great power. It's not merely that we have great power. We have great military power. We have great economic power, but geography still matters. <clears throat> and the United States is blessed by favorable geography. I still believe that is true. We have wide oceans to the east and west, and we have friendly neighbors to the north and south. Most countries would gladly trade places with the United States. And so from a purely security perspective, the United States is not uh, subjected to the kinds of urgent security challenges that other states have who have uh, resentful, angry, vengeful uh, neighbors uh, all around them. So that's number one. Number two, I think that defining security more broadly than merely our physical security, that is preventing another country from, from directly threatening the United States, goodness sakes, we've had multiple instances over the last five years to see the range of other things that are a threat to our lives, uh, a more proximate and urgent threat to our lives than the prospect of some distant power someday trying to launch an amphibious invasion of, uh, you know, um, Santa Monica, right? I mean, like, like there are there are so many other things that we we should be concerned about that are actually you know that are a threat to our security. And again, in terms of our health, our health and well being. Climate change is real. Climate change is something that more and more Americans and more and more around the world are understanding and that resources and time and attention needs to be dedicated to this problem. And so that's another example of where if we define security in a very particular way and more and, and in a particular way with respect to countering and deterring other states, but in an expansive way in terms of identifying areas for cooperation, that's that's really important to me. So I was curious on reading your paper um, about those kind of prescriptions for more international cooperation on some of these issues, you know, like, uh, for instance, global health, climate change, et cetera. And I'm, I'm kind of curious how well you see this shaking out, because like global health, for example, like whatever the final truth is about exactly what happened with the origins of COVID. I, I'm not super read up yeah. on it, so I, I can't say, like, I, I'm not going to give a diagnosis here, but it definitely seems like China was not fully forthright with the international community about what was going yes. on, about what yep. was happening. 
They were seemingly spreading some falsehoods, like saying that there was like this U.S. Army athletic team that was there. Yeah. They were the right. real ones who yeah. were the source of the disease. Yeah. And so there's like this lack of trust. And it seems related not just to the international environment where the U.S. and China have a great deal of distrust uh, that's partly a product of their choices and partly a product of our choices, but also a product of like China, uh, you know, is an autocratic system that's very careful to keep control, uh, does not want embarrassing news about it coming out, uh, has certain incentives that led it to do exactly what it did. And how would U.S. security policy changes and efforts to have more cooperation on some of these areas outside of traditional security match up against uh, a possible lack of partnership on the Chinese side? Because I think you could make a similar case yeah. about uh, climate or pollution, some of these other issues where like they have incentives to to lie about that or be non-compliant about it too, related to their own internal security and prosperity. John, we are in a low trust environment right now. And I think that's where we start this conversation. You fixed on this at the outset. In order to fashion um, cooperation on a range of transnational issues, you have to be operating from a position of trust. We are not doing that right now on either side. There is a there is a very, very low level of trust, both on the part of the United States and on the part of China. Um, so that's where things begin. And I think it is it starts with better, better and more consistent dialogue. This dialogue could take place at a low level and a working level. Pick an issue on which that is not particularly sensitive or hot button or even high profile. De develop a pattern of communication where we try to to build trust and and look, I will I I like to go back in this I don't always like to go back to the Cold War as an example, but in this instance I I I will, even at the moment when the United States and the Soviet Union were were hurling epithets at each other. Thankfully, it only was epithets, but but you know in the, the sort of the darkest days of the, the, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. There was cooperation on vaccines for things like polio. There was cooperation on in space. There was cooperation on the Arctic. There were areas of where, where even the United States and the Soviet Union, as, as, as tense as that relationship was, identified opportunities for dialogue. And I think that that is something that we should, but let me be clear. We are not ready for that just yet. Like for starters, we just need to be talking again. And and look, this is a problem. It goes both ways. I don't doubt it. Um, this is not merely a, a case of the United States not being willing to talk to the Chinese. They have also been unwilling to talk to us. In 2001, the EP3 incident, you know, this 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 horrible, tragic incident where where a Chinese pilot collided with an American P3 aircraft and 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 crashed. I worry a lot about those precisely those kinds of incidents. Right? It's not. It's it, it just accidents, right? So those sorts of interactions. And again, we have had in the past a framework for talking about precisely those kinds of incidents. Let's start there. Let's have a framework around, let's, in terms of health, yes, the Chinese were not forthcoming in terms of the origins of the COVID-19 virus. I think that is incontrovertible. Um, we have a World Health Organization. It exists for a reason. The United States is a member as well. The United States also has responsibilities under, within this organization. And so thinking you're going to carve out from the, from the World Health Organization, now the second largest country by population because India passed China, you know, you're just going to carve them out of the World Health Organization. That's absurd. I retain my cautious optimism of the possibility of negotiating in good faith but it has to start from a position of trust. And we don't have that right now. We need to work at building that. In talking about a position of trust, your piece is somewhat unique in that, in how much it addresses the problems at home. And I, it seems to me, you, you in fact bring up that there is a problem of trust at home and one that needs to be addressed. That makes me wonder, it seems like to have a we do less is, is a very difficult political trick to pull. To say there, there's, there, we, we should be doing less, we should have less control, less authority over things, you know, with I, or, or even just scaling back excess like Carter trying to do so with, with energy consumption. 
how do you imagine right. that American politicians will 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 reach a point where you're doing something on a grand strategic level that is more of a less is more approach? Well, for, first of all, Patrick, it's like less where, right? Because so so much of my of my case for a different approach to foreign policy is on what will we do with the time, attention, and money that we are currently spending in in foreign adventures. What would we do with that money here at home? And the answer is a whole lot. And again, let's have a discussion. And, and look, I have certain ideas about what, what is or is not a wise use of federal resources. Let's have a discussion uh, and, and let's, de- let's debate that. But, but what's, what's so frustrating to me about the case for primacy is that it just sort of imagines away those, again, those internal constraints that public sentiment is sort of in this vision is sort of infinitely malleable, right? That, that, that public sentiment doesn't really matter. It can change. It can be molded. And, and I think that's, that's not entirely accurate. And, and, and precisely for that reason, I say we should take public sentiment seriously. And right now, that public sentiment is not supportive of an expansive overseas mission, especially not growing the U.S. role abroad militarily, but they are supportive of trying to use some of these resources here. So that's not a story about doing less. That's a story about starting, prioritizing, and prioritizing here at home. But having said that, I do talk about what the United States should do more of abroad, right? And and I especially lean into diplomacy and trade. And, 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 and that sounds very, very sort of, you know, obvious maybe to some or whatever. First of all, the United States is is punching considerably below our weight in diplomacy. We are surrounded by other countries that have far less military capability than we are, and yet are are leading uh, uh, diplomatically around the world. And the United States used to be that power. The United States used to be weak militarily, and we played we punched above our weight diplomatically. We've got to rebalance here. Diplomacy means, again, it gets back to what I said a few minutes ago about identifying core interests, identifying opportunities for negotiation and compromise. That's the core of diplomacy. It can be boring. It can there, it, it, Diplomacy works well when there is no story, when there is no conflict, when something has been sorted out and maybe historians read about it and write about it 50 or 100 years after the fact. But we should, we should lean into that. We should be confident in our ability to engage in diplomacy well. And yes, I believe in trade. I believe the United States benefits from trade. I believe the world benefits from trade. My my ability to, to buy and sell from people around the world, irrespective of their origins or where they were born or things like that, I believe strongly that that is beneficial, um, not, not merely for the planet, but for the United States. I know that's a tough sell for some people here in the United States. Um, it starts with sort of, a clear understanding on the part of many Americans that job losses are not caused mostly by trade. They're caused mostly by technology and productivity gains. And that's a conversation that has to be had. But it's a less pleasing um, story to tell because a robot's not as good of a a boogeyman as a foreign enemy. And, And so that's why I think it's so easy to demonize trade with a foreign country and not demonize the fact that the thing that used to take 100 people to build now takes 10. Um, you know, who's the villain there? And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a harder story to tell. Uh, but I, I would like to see the United States doing more diplomacy and, ex- and more trade, leaning into trade, whereas right now the United States is doing, is doing less of both. So right now, as we're recording this, which is December 19th, uh, there's a lot of controversy happening about a you know important global trade lane, uh, the Red Sea, the Bab el Mandeb. Uh, you know the Houthis have been taking some pot shots at ships out there with increasing frequency and seeming seemingly increasing effectiveness. Uh, a lot of global shipping lines have said that they're not going to be going there. Uh, the United States has announced a, uh, a global coalition or a, a partially global coalition of at least 11 sure. or so nations, including the mighty Seychelles, uh, in Operation uh, Prosperity Guardian, uh, really an inspiring uh, name right there. Uh, <laughs> I would not put money, I, w- I was telling someone this morning, I would not put money on uh, saying that the United States 
will not have bombed Yemen by say the <laughs> end of the of this calendar year. Uh, by the time this, this by show the time airs, this airs, yeah, yeah. but yeah. it yeah. does raise a question of like, what do you think the U.S. role should be in protecting global trade? Because there's been a lot of talk in this week that like sure. the United States needs sure. to protect global trade. We need to secure sea lanes. I'd like to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I've written about this many times over the years, and I've probably mostly been influenced by Eugene Goltz and Daryl Press wrote about this many years ago, about the the notion that the United States or any one country is sort of uniquely responsible for protecting global trade. I think that is false. I think that is e- even the, the example that people point to in terms of Great Britain in the in the 19th century is 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 misleading. Um, there are many countries around the world that benefit from global trade. In fact, arguably, the United States is less trade dependent than many other countries around the world because we have a huge domestic market, which other countries don't have. So the United States clearly cares about global trade, but we're one of many actors that does. And that is why you can pick on the Seychelles. Uh, and, and maybe if someone from the Seychelles is listening, they should invite me to visit their country because I really need to do some field research because uh, that would be fantastic. Um you know, the notion of a coalition of maritime states that are um, that are threatened, whose trade is threatened by lawlessness, piracy, you know, this this type of behavior for them to band together is the greatest example of why the world could not and should not rely on a single state to do that. The United States of America has a, has a fantastic Navy. I served in the Navy. I'm proud of it. It's a great it's a great institution, but we are merely one of many seafaring nations around the world. And so it is precisely that kind of example. It's like, look, there are lots of other countries that want to to reestablish a sense within this particular waterway, within this particular uh, transit point that it is safe again so that these companies are and, and insurance companies and shipping companies feel confident again. That's not something that should fall exclusively to the United States of America and be paid for by American taxpayers. That should be a, that should be the responsibility of all countries that care about keeping the sea lanes open. And and this is the thing, like we, we saw this play out 13, 14 years ago off the Horn of Africa, right? There was a spate of uh, piracy uh, incidents, piracy off the Horn of Africa. And and once again, you had a you had a multinational task force pulled together. Yes, the United States played a, a role in sort of organizing it. But we weren't the dominant state. We weren't the only state that was doing this. And lo and behold, piracy declined. There were other steps that the shippers had taken, that the actual shipping companies took to protect themselves. So there's a lot. There's a lot of actors in this world who care about trade. And I think it's it's sort of a conceit of the United States that only we can do this. That's not true. Well, I guess maybe maybe to push you a little bit there, you know, in the paper, you push against the notion of the United States as the indispensable nation, uh, you know, which is kind of the central paradigm of of liberal hegemony. You know, as I see it, it's kind of a it's a reaction to the attempts to do collective security in the 90s and realizing like, hey, the the collective is not that good at producing a collective good. So you kind of need one big actor to step in and and provide the public good and other people come along in our wake. And, right. you know, regardless of the merits of this particular operation, Prosperity Guardian, again, if I had to put bets on it, I would bet that a heavy share of the, of the actual doing is going to be borne by the United States because we have the capability and we are the ones organizing it. It's, it's our right. operation uh, with the help of these other countries and even some of these right. kind of multinational cooperative task forces uh, that have tried to bring in countries like China that do participate, there has been a notable lack of interest uh, by the Chinese in getting involved here, even though they arguably have as much or more of a stake in more. shipping yeah. lanes in uh, in the Indian Ocean than we do. I would bet there's way more Chinese goods uh, and Chinese connections to these ships that are going through the Bob Alman Deb than to the United States. So doesn't like doesn't this kind of challenge that uh, that 
model that you're proposing of, hey, like <laughs> multilateral cooperation, it seems like this is still, uh, we do it and the rest of the world that's our friends helps and our enemies sit and watch and get the benefits of some of the security provided, right. but, are, but also right. don't have to pay the costs and like to see us paying the costs of doing this, both, uh, both materially and politically. Right. Whether you know it or not, John, you're making you're making an argument on my behalf. You said you were pushing back, but you just made the you explained the likelihood of free riding is is precisely what the provider, if there is a single sole provider of public goods or holds itself out as a provider of public goods, that that provider accepts as a condition of them providing this, that there will be free riding behavior. Well, it's one thing if the free riders are your friends and allies, but it's still another if your free riders are those who are your rivals, right? Look, I mean, public goods are underprovided for a reason, right? We know the tendency of these things to be underprovided in the free riding behavior, but But this is where the reality of the United States' constrained resources, and yes, our constrained naval resources, comes into play. The United States of America simply is not strong enough, rich enough, powerful enough to police every single waterway all the time. That is is an unreasonable expectation. And and so part of the, the trick, and I'll admit that it's a trick, is is to convince enough people around the rest of the world that the United States is not going to be the first provider of these services every single time there is a crisis. Because when we do that, we send a message that free riding is to be expected and we will continue to reward, effectively reward free riding behavior. And I think we need to start sending a very different message, which is we would like to help out everywhere all the time equally well. We can't do that. We're the United States of America. We are not omnipotent. And that's where the sort of American exceptionalism and and the the, uh, indispensable nation comes in. I've taken a shot at the indispensable nation notion many times, um, but, but but ultimately comes down to this. If the United States of America were truly indispensable, then every other country in the world is dispensable. And I'm sorry, I, ref- I refuse to accept that. I, I think that there are other countries in the world that have interests, that have capabilities, and that they will act in a way that advances their interests and their capabilities. And many times, frankly, those interests align with our own. As we sort of figure out a better way of defining when America uses force and creating an environment where people have less of an expectation that America will just instinctively use force, you have a section talking about being more discriminating with respect to the use of force, where you quote Colin Powell. I think it was about using GI men as as pieces on an international board game. Yeah. Do you think the Powell doctrine, yeah. if interpreted conservatively, could be an element of a better U.S. national security approach? I absolutely do. I mean, this has been my mantra for some time. And I guess my argument is if the criteria that Colin Powell and he he inherited these criteria from Casper Weinberger, he was Casper Weinberger's uh, chief military aide when Weinberger was secretary of defense under President Reagan, and then uh, Powell adapted them in the early 1990s, if, if his criteria are too stringent, then I'm I'm open to anyone else suggesting another set of criteria. But that's the key. We must have criteria. We must have a sense, and not just for the American people, most importantly, but for the rest of the world. We must have a sense that we know in, in these sets of circumstances, the United States is likely to act. In these other sets of circumstances, the United States is not likely to act. Again, to, to, to combat the tendency to free ride and the tendency to just expect that the United States is going to be the first mover and is going to be the, the lead in all of these situations. So to me, the, the critical elements, the most critical elements of the, of the Powell Doctrine, it starts with public sentiment. And this is why I spend so much time talking about public sentiment in my paper. We have to know where the public's, where, where their sort of collective mindset is, what they are likely to support. We need to have a sense of, of what the what the mission looks like? How do we define this mission? Is it is it militarily achievable? If we're not talking, if we're talking about a military intervention, what is the military? What are we expecting it to do? Um, many times, if you ask that question, you're going to discover no. As a matter of fact, actually, some the military should not be the lead on this. It should be dealt with through other ways. Um, we need to have. A, I think one thing that Powell didn't talk about much, but I think we should have some sense of how we're going to pay for it. Like how long we're going to be doing this? Where does the money come from? Uh, again, because we're broke, um, and 
And so those sets of criteria to me are very important. But like I said, if some people think that this is too stringent, if this places too high a bar on U.S. military intervention, that we that the concern is that if, if a president of the United States adopted these criteria as a guide to whether or not to use force, and the concern was they were not using force often enough, then I say to the to the to the challenge to the, to the critics and say, fine, what are your set of criteria for deciding when the United States uses force? The one the one thing that we absolutely cannot have is the United States uses force all the time everywhere and defends everyone from everything. That is absurd. And and so so this is let's have a conversation about where we draw the line, please. Um, because I will admit that I think my criteria are, are fairly stringent and would result in the United States using force less often, but it's certainly not the case for the other side that they want to use force all the time. Clearly, they must have something. Please spell those out. I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I want to address one, one element of helping others interpret America, having some level of an expectation of this is when America will intervene, because it seems like misinterpreting that has been a cause of a number of wars, including with a little country called Iraq. Uh, but you, you, you reference uh, the closure <laughs> of the U.S. Information Agency in 1999. Why did that matter? And what do you think needs to be reincorporated into a new brand strategy if that problem is going to be addressed? When I think in terms of public diplomacy, in terms of messaging about what the United States is trying to accomplish in the world and trying to communicate to others that the United States is, you know, has certain common interests and certain common objectives with other countries around the world. First of all, that kind of public diplomacy is not exclusively or arguably even primarily the province of the United States government and the State Department, right? There is more to this country. There is more to how we interact with the rest of the world than what the State Department does. Tragically, however, um, you know, one of the ways that, um, that many people not in the United States interact with the United States is through the U.S. military. That also is not the best way to put a best foot forward. So, so again, part of it is taking seriously the need to communicate on a sort of thoroughgoing and consistent way and not in an over-militarized way, not sort of presuming that the first and, and best way that others are going to interact with the United States is, is to you know, be threatened by us or, or be defended by us, that, that sort of thing. So that, that's very important to me. Um, the, the rationale for the closure of USAA, and I, I, I understand this, I'm sympathetic to it, was that, first of all, you have a proliferation of, of information sources. It's not the 1950s anymore. You know, for goodness sake, we're not talking about three or four television networks, right? And so is it realistic to think that the United States, an agency within the U.S. government, can actually coordinate these messages and be responsible for promulgating these messages? A fair point. So what we have instead is the presumption that uh, different agencies within the federal government will, will be responsible for their particular piece of this story. And, and as I explained in the paper, that's not realistic either. Because if you're the Commerce Department of the United States of America, you have a particular set of obligations and, and you're focused on, you're not focused on telling your story around the world. And, and I think it would be hard to imagine like what set of incentives would be put in place to make the Commerce Secretary care as much about you know, telling the message of, of what the United States is doing as they are trying to sort out how, how commerce, of course, is very actively involved in terms of export controls right now. You know, they're very focused on a, a narrow set of things. And so to me, it's about re- eliminating some of the overlap and duplication, but also sort of not assuming that this is just going to happen automatically uh, within the U.S. government. You need someone sort of making, actually affirmatively making the case uh, and trying to, to, and having that as their mission to communicate in a consistent way with the rest of the world. One of the changes around the, the USIA that seems apparent to me is a change in what American news means. You you, you got you know the creation of Fox mm-hmm. News, the end of the, uh, I think it was called like the equal time rule or, you, you know, just little by little turning yep. turning yep. news more political. Yep. Um, and and as yep. partisanship has, has arrived in like, you know, with internal American culture and, you know, things changing in that sense, we, we also have seen, or at least in, I think some people have argued that um, different alliances are a little bit political. It, it seems to me like uh, uh, Zelensky yes. is more specifically allied with the Democratic Party than he is the United States. And, you know, there, there, there are some other uh, uh, 
there are some other partners or alliances that are really hoping for a certain outcome in the next election. You know, I mean, that seems to me like an obvious recipe for foreign interference. So like, how can, how can we, how can we avoid foreign interference through an alternative approach to information? Well, actually I'm going to, I'm not going to answer your question, Patrick. I'm going to answer a different question because what you speak to is that our politics and, and the polarization in our politics absolutely exposes the United States to foreign interference. That is unquestionably true. Um, It is not completely unique to 2023. As a matter of fact, at the dawn of the Republic, there was a lot of concern for precisely the same thing, that the, the, the severe polarization and partisanship of the early federal period was was also ripe for foreign interference, right? And so my point is simply this: we have experienced this before. We have we have dealt with it, I think, in a in a reasonable way. But it starts it starts with getting our politics in order. And again, we talk we talk about trust, right? We talk about the importance of trust between the United States and China, between U.S. leaders and Chinese leaders. We do not have an environment of trust in our politics. It is a serious problem here in the United States. And so I would I would focus on trying to restore some sense of trust, some sense of of look, we do have a common purpose, Republicans and Democrats, whether we care to admit it, we disagree on how to achieve that common purpose. But it starts with defining what that common purpose is. We are we have moved away from that. So to answer your question, you sort of get a roundabout way of answering your question, it's like, yes, we have to pay attention to this this danger of foreign interference, but it starts with us, not with foreign interference, right? Not with the, those you know, sort of trying to interfere with our elections or, or politics. Yeah, just to to follow up there, how how do we fix our internal politics? Because I feel like I hear a lot of folks in our space saying, "Hey, we need to get our house in order." Uh, whether yeah. that's before or after we go and, and then go put other people's houses in order or serve as an example of what a house yeah. in order looks like, whatever it may be. Right. Uh, and that seems really hard. Like nobody, nobody has been able to figure out an answer to that. Uh, you know, my old boss at, at TNI, Bob Mary would have said, uh, you need <laughs> like a president who kind of has like a transformative effect on the political system and realigns right. coalitions uh, it seems like we're, you know, that we have diseases of division and uh, mutual loathing in this country that nobody has found a cure for. And so to yeah. make that a premise of like how we move forward in our foreign policy, how do we do that? You know, and also like I, I see a lot of folks kind of expressing the George Kennan sort of view, and I think you put it in a, in a footnote in your paper, yep. Uh, yep. what we need to do is be an example of a successful free society. And I still think there's a whole lot of strength in that. I just mm-hmm. wonder uh, how much appeal is there for that now versus, say, you know, when Kennan was writing in 1950, 1953. Mm-hmm. Um there may not be a lot of appeal for it now. Um, our politics is such that, you know, because I think gerrymandering is a key factor here. So, you know, uh, elect, elected representatives choose their voters, not the other way around. Um, this this privileges the party, privileges sort of the primary, you know, when you're living in a safe district, then the concern you have as a Democrat or Republican is is fending off a challenge from from the extremes of your party and that then you're not actually incentivized, motivated during the governing period. Uh, we, we, again, we're, we're, there is no governing period for a member of the, con- of the House, right? Because they're just always running for office. But but when you're thinking about governing as opposed to merely running for office the next time, there is very little incentive right now, tragically, to cooperate. In fact, the incentive is to not cooperate with the, with the enemy. And here, you know, again, this is part of it. It's just like, why are we defining our fellow Americans as enemies? Like, wh- by what logic do we do we treat each other that way? I I don't think that way, and I and and candidly, I think it does start with sort of asking the hard questions about what exactly about this person that you're that you you refuse to to engage with, you know. What, what is the alternative? What's the practical alternative? Because here's the, here's the other dirty little secret. Um, 
you know, we are a divided country. We're split, you know, fairly evenly, you know, with a fair number of folks that are that, that define as independent. But but what is the solution that doesn't involve trying to bring along a coalition that includes some of the people on the other side? Um, otherwise, we're just locked in this perpetual period of stasis. And and that's not good enough. Right. We have to make progress. There are some urgent challenges that actually require us to do things as opposed to simply treading water. And so um, I, I do think politics, there are some there are some structural things that I'm a big fan of. I, I'm a strong believer in in instant instant runoff or, or, or things like that. They call it, sometimes they call it ranked choice voting. I think instant runoff is a better explanation. Um, I think that's very useful. Um, I think some of the, the reforms that have involved sort of a, a, a less partisan um, gerrymandering system or a system that, that, is, that creates districts that are, that are more competitive, that could be very useful. So there are some nuts and bolts for sort of d- democracy reforms that I am a, I'm a, a, in favor of. But here again, I'm not pretending like I have all the answers. I just look around at our political system right now and I say, if people don't think this is broken, then they're not paying attention. On, on that topic of some of that partisanship, it was really interesting to to read your piece because you've written a, a, a book that is about libertarian uh, uh, foreign policy, and and you you at one point say, uh, well, I'm I don't want to I don't want to define it for you, but uh, uh, I, I was I was reading this article <laughs> as someone who's more on sort of the Bernie Sanders left, and and I agreed with most things you were arguing. It, the John Quincy Adams Society has this transpartisan element. Uh, a, a huge portion of our coalition is has has we we really kind of uh, uh, have a lot of the same conclusions. So when you when you use this sentence uh, or like, uh, approaches that transgress or otherwise violate the U.S. Constitution's uh, limits on power that are inconsistent with free market principles uh, and cannot command broad public support are likely to fail. That that, that question about free market principles. Uh, uh, I, I'm curious because where do we see that? What does it mean to design U.S. foreign policy around free market principles? And do you think that there is a transpartisan approach to doing that? Well, I think the way I would answer that question, Patrick, is is we can imagine a set of policy prescriptions that is not consistent with free market principles and that is not, I would argue, consistent with constitutional government as defined here in the United States, which would be perfectly reasonable in Russia or China or pick another place, but would be unreasonable here. So for example, you know, the United States of America, yes, we have certain provisions, you know, emergency provisions or things like that for mobilizing resources in the time of an emergency. But generally speaking, the United States government does not, does, does not go about sort of seizing property of private firms. It does not we do not have a draft in this country. We do not force people to serve in the military against their will. So again, I can I can think of a whole set of, of prescriptions that even in the in the United States in a different era in a different context seem perfectly reasonable in this day and age are certainly not. So that was really all I'm talking about. It's like so so yes, from a free market perspective, there you know when the United States is mobilizing resources for national security, we have to buy them. We have to pay for them. We have we have to honor certain private property rights. That's really what I mean, right? And and so again, the, as I said in the paper, these are appropriate to the United States of America. They are not the same set of principles that we would expect another country but to abide by. Nor should we. This is a strategy paper for the United States. This is how we would go about doing this. Sticking to that question of values, one of the things you say in this paper is that we shouldn't be kind of fighting to convert other nations to our values. And so I would ask, what role do you see our values and our kind of way of life model of what we think a society ought to be? What role do you see that playing in our foreign policy? You said it, John, it's modeling, right? And this is what Kevin talked about, right? Is that we, we, should, we should be creating a society that is worthy of emulation. And, and and tragically, and we have in the past in our history, we have. Uh, right now, we're not doing that, right? You know, and so so if we think that democracy and the growth and spread of democracy around the world is important, we can think that on strategic grounds because some people believe that democracy is more peaceful. I can I can support that 
on classical liberal grounds as a small L liberal, right? Because I believe that that government is better, that represents the will of the people. I can want those things, but if we're not modeling what an effective democracy can be, then that is the greatest knock against democracy right now, right? It is, it, it is hard enough to promote democracy in places that have never had it. It's particularly hard to promote democracy at a time when people look at the United States and say, wait, aren't you a democracy? Of course, we're not, we're a republic, but you know, we have democratic principles. Like, what, what about that? What, and so I think it's so important for us to model good behavior. That's why political reform here is so important. I don't get into a lot of the details in the paper. I just emphasize the importance of sort of taking seriously that our own domestic health, our, our, the health of our democracy is important. But also, I, I do feel fairly strongly that, that for the United States to take on as a mission democratizing most of the rest of the world that is not already a democratic is not consistent with those narrow set of core strategic interests that I said at the outset, right? Whether or not a certain country is democratic or ruled by a king or ruled by an emir or whatnot is not necessarily a threat to the United States. In fact, I would argue in many cases it is not. Okay, so that that to me is what's so important. And and again, I'll point to some work Matt Burroughs and Evan Cooper wrote about this back when we were at the Atlantic Council on the importance of democracy promotion and sort of putting it into the right context. I feel really strongly about that. I think I probably cited the paper in, in, in my paper. Look, it starts with getting our own house in order, first and foremost. And Kennan understood this. I mean, it was ironic. Kennan was not a great Democrat in many respects, right? Small D Democrat. And yet he did understand the importance of a healthy civil society to an effective foreign policy. He understood that very, very well. And, and I think we need to re- restore some of that, that sense here in, uh, in our foreign policy community. That is all the time we have. Thank you, Dr. Christopher Preble of the Stimson Center for coming on Security Dilemma. Thanks. Thanks a lot, both of you, for having me on the show. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Students and young professionals apply to the Marcellus Policy Fellowship by January 14th. Mid-career professionals apply to the Strategic Leaders Fellowship by January 24th. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma.